Hey everyone, and welcome to the 59th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. All right, so this is going to be very interesting. Um, it's kind of funny because this is the first interview where I've kind of felt uncomfortable releasing a podcast, specifically because I might get some backlash from the libertarian community because it's weird to say that there are certain things that, or certain interviews that someone might hold that will get you quote unquote canceled in the libertarian movement. And it feels weird to say that being what we stand up for. But I wanted to reach out to Francis Went, someone who's been caught up in a lot of this controversy at National and the Libertarian Party, and hear his side, because to be honest, I'm sick and tired of politics, and I think one of the biggest problems with national politics is how it removes people from the personal level. You're dealing with people from New York when you live in Montana, and this is the same phenomenon that happens on Twitter. When you're tweeting at people, just responses that make them seem like a bot, you don't really care about their personal livelihood. And Francis has been attacked a few times. And by the side that I associate with, um, I don't really know what to say about that. And some thoughts come out in this interview. I'm not sure how many people are going to listen to it, but I wanted to get it out there for some of you who are who are thinking independently and just want to hear the other side, because I think there's some value to it, whether or not you agree with Francis, because I certainly don't. I don't agree with him on everything, but this is still a conversation that I think I needed to have and a conversation that Francis needed to have. And that's what this podcast is about. I really do hope people find value in it. And if you want to watch the YouTube version, I've been doing video for a while now, so you can find me on YouTube. I'll link to it in the description, but I'm also on Odyssey now. Otherwise, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Oh, and also this is coming off the tail of my interview with Joshua Smith. Francis was mentioned in that interview and Francis listened to my interview with Josh. So if you want the context behind that, you can go and listen to it. I'll link to that in the description as well. But know that I tried to be as impartial in that interview as possible. I am with the Mises Caucus, so it was a little difficult because I agree with Joshua Smith's at least strategy when it comes to the LP. But I did have some problems with the treatment of the drama that happened at National over New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and all of that. I don't think that the rifts that exist in those state necessarily exist in Montana. And the more we focus on them and the more resources and attention we draw to those rifts and controversies and conflicts, I think the more that that kind of poisons other states when that might be the least efficient thing that we could do. And I'm speaking from experience there. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, I'm going to hop into it now. And if you have any feedback, leave some comments. I'd like to actually interview as many people involved in this conflict as I can, because I'm trying to remain impartial and convince people of my perspective, which is that localities matter the most. This interview is long, and I hope you make it all the way through. But at the very least, please subscribe, share this interview around, give me a like, and spread the word. Here's Francis. All right, everyone. So I have Francis Went with me. Um, I'm a Mises Caucus organizer and a Missoula County Chair of the Libertarian Party here in Montana. And Francis has been pretty involved with the state here. And he essentially helped build the party the last few years. And he's kind of been caught up in a lot of the controversy that happened at National. And I'm sure anyone who is sympathetic to me, to Mises or has 
followed the national controversy at all has probably heard about Francis. Um, and me just knowing of him and the work that he's put into this party, I wanted to bring him on because I think that my biggest problem with politics, especially at the national level, is how there's no personal engagement with people. Being able to just recognize that there are, there is humanity at this personal level, just being able to see who people are. So, um, Francis, I, I'm glad that you reached out to me. You watched my interview with Josh Smith um, and you commented under it and we, we just, we called a couple of days ago and we kind of talked about, uh, what you were thinking and, and what I was thinking. And I just wanted to bring you on. Um, do you just want to introduce yourself and tell people who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Francis went, uh, former region one representative, uh, former Montana libertarian party state chair, former state chair of, uh, libertarian party of Gallatin Valley. Uh, former big l libertarian honestly uh so my background is i've been living in bozeman montana for a better part of 15 years uh montana is a very live and let live state it's kind of one of the things that drew me to the libertarian party was libertarian values are montana values it just kind of they go hand in hand uh so really kind of I've got a background in military. I spent six years active duty Air Force. I've been in the Army National Guard for the last uh, 10 years. So uh, been doing that. I work as a sales coordinator for uh, Hampton Inn here in Bozeman. Uh, so I work for Hilton Corporate. And uh, my background and education is in business management and economics. So that went to Montana State University in Bozeman um, and still working on those degrees about like two or three credits short, you know, because state education, you know, Uh, but uh, so, yeah, that's kind of my background. I just had a son about seven weeks ago um, and kind of shifting focus uh, to building my family and uh, and supporting them. So, yeah. I'm ready for any questions you have with me. Yeah, I don't I don't want to make the interview entirely about everything that happened. I, I really do want to know more about you. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you became a libertarian? I know part of it happened while you were going to school. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my journey into libertarianism was out of my Econ 101 class. Uh, my professor, Holly Fretwell, who's on the LPGB roles, um, she didn't come out and say, question the bundle of truth that people are feeding you. Um, but that's what she said, (laughs) you know, it, it was that, um, thinking about how you can buy different planks. Um, but when you buy into a party, you, you're buying all of the planks. So, like if you're a democrat you're buying into uh you're buying into all the social change and social reform and social justice but you're also buying into the cops can kill people type of deal right if you're a republican you're buying into um a lot of the states rights things along those lines but you're also buying into um 
things like closed borders, abortion, and I'm not trying to say any plank is right or wrong, um, but you don't necessarily believe all of the planks that are there. And so that lesson kind of taught me how to um, start evaluating, start looking at, you know, what are the truths behind uh, the rhetoric? And in that, so I started looking back at the economic base of what I was learning and started kind of really evaluating who was talking about that. And that was in 2011. I joined the Libertarian Party, uh, National Libertarian Party in 2011, um, started following all of the candidates, started following, uh, you know, Austin Peterson, started following uh, Gary Johnson and a few others. Um, so just looking into all of that and um, eventually Gary Johnson got the got the nomination in 2012 and so started supporting him there. And that's when I first started kind of working to build the county party. It didn't really work in 2013 because, you know, post-presidential just doesn't work. Nobody has the drive and the fire. Um, but so from there, uh, kind of stayed like in the back burners of the Libertarian Party. Um, but 2016 decided I, I had really had enough and I put my name on the ballot for state representative, um, ran against a Democrat in a Democrat district. Uh, there was a Republican in the race too, got about 4%. Um, then, and that was really eye opening because I just did it. I, I, nobody asked me to, nobody did anything. I just said, I'm done with this. I put my name on the ballot, figured out how, um, didn't run a campaign really, but uh, then, you know, repeated it in 2018, you know, chose my district a little bit more wisely, chose who my opponents were. Um, and that, that kind of influenced me a little bit more. And I also started working on recruiting people in as candidates. And then 2020, uh, you know, we recruited 25 candidates in 2018 and we recruited about 23 candidates in 2020. Um, so, it, it really was about learning the learning process and building over time. And, you know, we didn't have a primer. We didn't have a book to go by. We had uh, Mike Fellows, great man, but he had been holding the Torch of Liberty in Montana for um, the better part of uh, two decades. You know, he, he, was, he was paying for it with time, treasure, and ultimately he paid for it with his life. He died on the campaign trail. Um, and 2016 is when we all kind of picked up the pieces and realized that we were leaning on one man for so long that um, everybody else just kind of reaped the benefits of it. Uh, ballot access in Montana is because of Mike Fellows. So. Um, yeah, and, and before we get more into like your um, role in kind of building the party as it stands now, uh, can you talk? a little bit about your military career a little more and like, um, sure. Um, yeah. So I was, as far as things go, my, I enlisted in the air force in 2000. Um, so prior to nine 11, I was enlisted. Uh, it was kind of a family tradition. My sister graduated from West Point. My father was a 20 year air force veteran, uh, of Korean and Vietnam wars. Um, so it was, the, it was the people I respected had done it before me. So 
I followed them because they're the people I wanted to be like. Um, and, you know, not saying like war is good because war is not good. Like my dad would never talk about it. But at the same time, you know, it's it's that stark realization where there are people in this world who want to kill you. And at that and you can either let them kill you or you can uh, <laughs> you can stand up and defend yourself. Um, now, how foreign policy has actually been played out, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's where a lot of people can have those debates. And um, since I'm still in the guard, I really can't have those debates. Yeah. Uh, so, but what I had done is I did six years enlisted in the Air Force. I did deploy three times in the Air Force uh, in Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, and then uh, a show of force against the uh, North Korea. So I was st- I worked on heavy bombers. I was a bomb loader. So like in Iraq, we would launch thousands of pounds of munitions, and they would come back clean. So uh, <laughs> yeah. The ordinance that I put on planes killed Iraqis. I know that very well. So, um, but yeah, I, and I left the Air Force because of how it was, the narrative that was kind of coming through. It was the people around me were saying, oh, those damn ragheads and all of those things. And to me, like, they are your enemy, but respect your enemy. You know, don't, don't just demean them and dehumanize them. And they're doing what they think is right, whether or not it is, uh, whether or not you're doing what's right. It It's the way the world is right now. And, you know, whether or not you can change that, that's, that's the politics of it. But, um, but that's really what the key point was, is when it became less, it became more about, you know, making someone not human and and targeting them and making them um, just numbers or pink mist, you know, wh- whatever. Like that glorification, that's, that's what I had issue with. Um, like people die all the time, but – and sometimes people need to die. Uh, if they're going to kill you, you should probably kill them first. Just saying. Um but what it really boils down to is like, don't take their humanity away. That that's just the worst sin. So um, that's why I left the Air Force. Uh, I spent six years away, and I realized that civilian life sucked. So <laughs> I uh, decided that I needed to spend at least part time. So I joined the Montana Guard, and uh, I've been in the Guard since 2011. So I'm coming on 10 years in the Guard. Um, looking at about four years more and then I'll put my military life behind me and I'll figure out what I need to do next. So, yeah, well, since you're in it, uh, I don't want you to talk about it too much, but, um, more about you studying economics in school, you and I had this conversation about, uh, kind of what school of economics you were in and you said that you didn't really adopt one, but I, I'm, I was interested in the fact that you mentioned the federal reserve and stuff like this, which I was always, um, I was just amazed by that because it was like, 
if I heard anything coming from the people that I'm supposed to listen to, uh, being that I'm a Mises member, it would have been that you're just this guy who has no understanding of economics or, you know, and the fact that you mentioned the Federal Reserve and, and what they're doing to devalue the dollar and, and steal our wealth was very interesting. So I'm curious, did economics at all contribute to um, libertarian thought, I guess, rather than just thinking about uh, the partisan nature of things? Absolutely. No, I, yeah, economics definitely contributed to it. Like, And it's not just my 101 class. There were other classes um, that kind of cemented me into that like in my macro econ class they were talking about like um you know they did the pie chart like is it easier to take take the uh economy and make it more equitable or is it easier to shrink the economy and make it more beneficial to your constituency you know and that that's what we see these days we see the republicans and democrats making the uh making the economy more inefficient to benefit their own constituency um so that you know it's if you can bankrupt the other side then um they can't pay for campaigns uh that's that's the concept and that's that's the warfare that's been going on between those two parties um and so yes it it really the economic to me economics is one of those things that it's not really debatable it's it's just math you know it's like you can you can look at it you can uh you can say these things but when you really break down to it and you analyze it quantitatively like there's not a debate it's like yeah it inflation causes uh the reduction of purchasing power um and yeah the federal reserve pegs inflation at two plus two percent plus and yeah, that's a hidden tax because what you make, your prices are sticky. You know, it's like, these are all facts. And it's just a question of like trying to explain that. Like, who, who are you actually talking to? It's the real question. Like, I, if I try and explain this to my girlfriend, she, her eyes glaze over, right? She doesn't want to hear this. She just takes my word for it and says, yes, honey, everything's wonderful. You're so smart. Uh, she doesn't say that, but, but the point is like, yeah, if we want to talk about economics, we can talk about economics, but that's a very narrow scope of who you're talking to. So um, my opinion is like everybody in the party is at least solid on economics. That's, that's why we're not having the conversations because we don't need to, we all understand it. Um, like, even Joe Bishop Henchman, like his job, he's a tax, he's a lawyer who goes and and put like he lobbies state legislatures to reduce taxes because it's a burden on everyday life. Like funny funny story, if you have more money in your pocket, you're better off. You know? One of the basic tenets of economics is uh, everyone prefers more. Um, so yeah, yeah. sorry, go ahead. You just got into JBH, uh, for a second there. Um, so I think yeah. that we can actually get into what happened. And I, I mean, coming from the Mises caucus and still sympathizing with them and inviting Joshua Smith on to talk about it. Uh, I'm still interested in, in what your perspective is because 
from my understanding, it seemed as if you just kind of got lumped into something that uh, you shouldn't have. And maybe a little bit of this had something to do with a personal conflict at, at some level. Um, but I, I'm just wondering, like, can first, can you recount what happened? Because some people might not be list or might not have listened to my interview with Josh Smith. And then um, yeah. can we get into it? So my read of the situation, I was on military training that weekend. Um, so one of the DOD directives is that if you're on orders, you can't deal on politics. Like that was a, that's a fine line that I was playing. Um, that like every time I went on drill or anything along those lines, um, I communicated to the LNC. I put it on the business list, said I am out of, I am incommunicado. And Chris Lucchini is, uh, is taking representation of the region. Um, because that's what I had to do. Uh, so all of this stuff in New Hampshire uh, decided to break conveniently when there were two, uh, two meetings going on. Uh, well, two conventions were going on. One was going on um, in Florida, uh, which was predominantly Mises, and one was going on in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which was predominantly Prags. Um, so... I don't know what was said at those meetings, uh, but they happened the same time that this happened. So it, it felt a lot like whatever was going on was talked about at those conventions. And um, yeah, I, I'm not going to speculate too much on that because that's really unsubstantiated. But the point is there was a lot that was unsubstantiated. Like, calling like corruption is a serious charge right but the problem is like what i saw was calls of corruption without any substantiating evidence and you know i've got you, you've seen the uh business list you've seen you've heard the talks but like i i read every email i read all the internal emails mm -hmm. I did not see any corruption. Yes, there was subjectiveness about the timing of the letter, things along those lines. But like what what the sound of corruption was coming from two people on the Allen's. Yeah, Francis. So um just just to back up a little bit, uh okay. what what we're talking about is New Hampshire. Um, yes. for, for the people who don't uh, know what's going on. Um, so can you just explain what happened at, at New Hampshire? What, what is, yes. So, so backing it up, my read from my understanding and where I was at with it, uh, New Hampshire elected a new executive board. Um, that was predominantly Macy's back in March and that executive board, um, was responsible for various questionable things. I'm not going to comment whether or not it was. Because things like uh, the messaging, the tweets, they came up. Like, they came up in LNC discussions. Like, no different than Kentucky's messaging and tweets were coming up. And time and again, the LNC was saying, it's not our problem. We don't get to regulate this. We're not, this is not a part of us. This. this is a state matter. And the bylaws state 
the the national party cannot abridge a state without you know sufficient cause there was only one like for the lnc to do anything about any affiliate there's one option the nuclear option of disaffiliate um so what happened in new hampshire is that uh that really you had a rogue chair the chair was elected in March. The chair received a letter from the national chair attesting that she was, the, in fact, the chair of the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire. And then she took that letter and then proceeded to do unethical, immoral, and potentially illegal things. And that um, letter and that letter was from JBH. Yes, that letter was from the chair of the of. Uh, the party at the time, which was Joe Bishop Hench. So um, now that letter, um, the letter in question, it's like, it's speculative to the time. It's saying that he gave the letter because he knew what was going to happen. Um, you know, Jarvis may, said in, in, a, in one of her interviews that, um, that he was in on it. I like, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't see that as reality. I think it can, comes down to a chair, ask this, the national chair for a letter to validate that they were in fact the chair of a state organization, which you'll need for things like secretaries of state or banks or whatnot. And what Jarvis did with it was then to proceed to seize control of an organization and disenfranchise a rightfully elected board. And when that came, when that question was allowed to come to the LNC without all of the distractions, without all of the calls of corruption, without all of that, we summarily voted it, voted down disaffiliation. Because it doesn't matter if I like Mises. It doesn't matter if I like who was elected in New Hampshire. What matters is that they were elected. Like, it's not, you know. So what I see is it was a situation that was completely solvable at a much lower level, but the LNC was dragged into it when our only option and our only vote we could take was to disaffiliate. So we took that vote and said, no, we're not disaffiliating now. Yeah, so I think it's important to kind of explain what happened with that vote, um, specifically the fact that you did not vote to disaffiliate. You, at, like Francis went, didn't vote to disaffiliate at all. No, uh, absolutely. I, I did not vote, and there was actually only two votes to disaffiliate, and that was from Tucker Coburn and Joe Bishop Hanchman. Um, Tucker, I, I'm not going to speculate as to what his situation was. Joe Bishop Henchman, you know, I'm, he's his own man. And I, I don't think we need to villainize votes, but at the same time, like it was the wrong vote. We should not have disaffiliated a state party because uh, they elected the wrong people. Yeah. So how did you then get lumped into the controversy then? Because I think that this is where we start to get a little interesting where it's like now people who are with the Mises caucus are calling on you to resign. So how do we get from this to this point? Because I, when I was on the LNC, what I was pushing for was accountability. Uh, 
there was the questions of decorum. There was the questions of all of that. Um, and my push was to make the Libertarian Party a professional organization. And I, I failed at that. Um, I, I do not believe that the Libertarian Party of, can be a professional organization in its current structure. Um, because if the people at the top, if the officers at the top are going to go on to um, their podcasts and their personal sites and claim them as personal and proceed to lobby against their colleagues on the LNC and proceed to belittle, derate, and, and rehash every vote. Like, there's no decorum in that. There is there is no respect in that. There, That is dehumanizing. That's exactly the same thing that the people in the Air Force were doing to the Iraqis when I left the Air Force. Like, it's it's literally just painting someone as an enemy and then killing them at all costs. And that's what I see happening right now. Um, and I tried to force that accountability. I tried... I tried to ask the secretary to control herself. I had been trying for six months to ask her to control herself. She did not. So, so can, can you talk a little bit more about um, what you're claiming that her problem was? And, and I mean, if, if we can, we can also name her because she is the secretary and a lot of people know about right in the party. Right. Um, so the secretary of the national party is Karen Ann Harlow's. Um, and what there's a lot that's behind, you know, the NDAs, the internal list, things along those lines. Um, so I don't want to go too much into detail of that because there there's executive session and legal questions that are surrounding that. Um, but the point is, like, every decision that the LNC has made for the last six months has been second-guessed on her um, on her YouTube channel, on her Facebook channels. Um, everything that's, you know, like, I wasn't the villain in June. I was the villain in January. You know, it's... It, because what she was bringing i was asking and trying to hold account i was trying to hold accountability i was saying well you're saying it this way and then you're doing the opposite thing um you know you're saying that the bylaws matter and then you're going back to roberts and saying that roberts overrules the bylaws which fun fact no um so it's like the point is like the rules kept changing. The rules kept um, kept moving, and like it got to a point where it was belligerent, it was abusive, and you know there are the internal lists where like literally every every email had well, I you know they were pointing out some other person's flaw, not making any arguments, not making logical assertions pointing out people's flaws, attacking people in full public view. Um, yet when, when something needed to be presented that made her vulnerable, it went straight to the internalist and it was objected to um, that 
she does not consent to release those things, though that information. Um, so you get this double standard where we shouldn't have an internal list. She made those arguments and then she uses the internal list to hide her secrets. So it, it, it just boggles my mind how people can support a person who is that belligerent and that abrasive and think it's okay. So I'm, I wasn't alone. There were six people like the vote was thrown out because of parliamentary procedure spearheaded by Karen N. But over half of her colleagues do not want to work with her. That should tell you something. So I'm what I'm interested about, and I think full disclosure, I should say that I like I don't know enough about even this national issue at all. The, th- the thing the reason that I wanted to talk to like first Josh and then you was because this was we were feeling the effects at the local level. Like, yeah, I, I, I was trying to build here um, another one of the organizers, Adam was also trying to build here and essentially everything has been slowed um, because of the drama that happened at national. Um, And that is the reason why I wanted to talk to Josh and you is just to like, talk about like, well, Hey, like these are people, um, Francis, you're somebody who has helped build the party here, um, essentially get the infrastructure, keep us uh, alive essentially. Um, So I, I, I wanted to reach out to you. So and that's all to say that I don't know enough about Karen and Harlos. I don't know enough about this national issue, but I wanted to reach out to you and talk to you at a personal level. So something that I'm wondering about is how did the vote to remove Karen and Harlos get lumped in with everything that happened at national? Because it seems like they happened at the, like within the same exact time frame, And it's like, are they even the same issue or is this just optics? Like, I, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I think the point is the people who sponsored the vote were done with the drama. Karen Ann Harlos claimed that she was a whistleblower. Um, I'm not going to argue any of those facts. What it really comes down to is that we believe that the people who sponsored the motion believe that the New Hampshire crisis was manufactured. Well, at least the crisis portion of it, like it, it could have been handled. It could have been solved immediately. It did not have to be what it was, but it was what it was for theatrics. Um, and that's what we were done with. We were okay. and, and on that point, I, th- I think it's interesting here because like I, I might actually is I'm going to try to get out a lot of thoughts right now. So there um, when okay. I joined the Mises caucus, my read of the party and the Libertarian Party was that it needed professionalism. I, I like it, it's interesting that when I saw the Mises caucus, my goal or my read of them was that they would bring this movement into the party and legitimize it and, and make it seem like what they claim 
they're trying to do. And I, you know, I'm still with the Mises caucus and I'm still on board and I'm going to work with them and I want to build locally. And they say that their goal is to build locally. And I hope that's what they do. And I hope we get more resources here. Um, but when I, when I joined, like it, it was kind of just like, like let's professionalize everything here. And it's weird that the rhetoric issue has come up um, and also the strategy issue just within this one conversation, because like decorum, um, I don't necessarily disagree with the fact that the Mises caucus should be more professional with their rhetoric. I do think that they could be radical in more area areas for sure. Like I think that um, we could be better about talking about foreign policy and stuff like that. Um, and I think we could be better about all of this, but I think that if we say that we are the Ron Paul revolution, like a lot of us say, um, I think that the professionalism that that brought is something that we should mirror. So that's, that's on that point. But then also you were, you were talking about decorum in the sense of the process um, that was going on and the manufactured crisis, because that's another area where I think you're onto something um, where when I was looking at what was happening, I agree with the goal of Mises, the Mises caucus. Like I agree and I want Dave Smith to become the nominee. I, I want um, their strategy or their purported strategy of local action to be something that is implemented. Like I want more resources at the local level. I want to uh, run candidates and everything because if we are a decentralized movement, that's where things should be. But then I see at least the spirit of what happened around New Hampshire. And it feels like in, I don't know how to explain it other than just kind of like a, um, Noam Chomsky's idea of manufactured consent or like, uh, you know, when you see the energy that is around like the assassination of General Soleimani, like I'm not saying that they're comparable at all, but the energy that is around it, where it's like literally these Iraqi Shiites militia groups attack an embassy and somehow there is this energy to fabricate this entire story that somehow gets the American people to believe that we can bomb a general in Iraq that isn't even like is an Iranian general. And, and it felt like what was happening here was we identified a problem, the same problem that you identified, the same problem that you voted to essentially not recognize, like you recognize that there was a, a rogue chair and you kind of said that like what she did was not the right move or that you didn't accept it. But then the next move was, well, we're going to claim that Francis is a bad guy because he doesn't support what Karen Ann Harlow's did. Like it just felt like it, it was this weird manufacturing of anger. And I don't, it felt very political and it felt like, um, too immediate. Like we, if, if we cared about these goals of local action, it would be like, we would have the patience of waiting until 2022, because I mean, the writing's on the wall and, and you've told me this too, Francis, like that, that the Mises caucus is winning and you've supported Mises candidates in Montana. 
So it's just, it's just interesting that like we were so impatient that we had to grasp this manufactured crisis to politicize or capitalize off of it, I guess. Like those are my thoughts. I threw a lot out there, but I've been thinking about them for a while. And, and I think the real key is like, you know, the statement is like, well, what is the Mises caucus? I mean, like you cannot generalize, uh, like Steve Dashbach, uh, one of the chair candidates from, uh, the election that just happened. Um, he, uh, he said, you know, you can't pay to all the Mises in the same, with the same brush and, and you're, he's right. Um, I did also come back with him and say, yeah, but when you, when you're creating a culture that like, that is focusing on these social issues, like Mises shouldn't be focusing on any social issues. Like it's an economic platform, right? Like the messaging from Mises should be economics and none of a, none of the prags, none of the radicals, none of that will worry about it. Like the outright libertarians, they'll have, they'll work with you night and day if you're not talking about social issues. However, like the minute you start stepping on their planks, they're going to, that's the issue, right? It's like when you, when you get people and maybe they're rogue people, you know, like Kaufman saying, you know, hang a hundred trannies. That's, that's really bad. Like, it's like, that's again, villainizing again, demonizing. And like when I was in my poli sci classes, one of the, one of the movies we watched was called faces of the enemy. Like you can do anything to anybody if you think they're your enemy, because they're not human anymore. Like, that's really what it comes down to is like, why do you think um, the Bosnians gas the Serbs? You know, why, why do genocides happen? Because you dehumanize someone, because you make them chattel. And, and that, that's the danger. And that's where racism and bigotry come into play because people who believe, you know, that there is a social difference between um, ethnicity, creed, anything along those lines, they will, they will nest themselves into that culture and they will do bad things. Yeah. So that is another thing that I think um, we we might need to address just since it came up. So something that happened in in, uh, my interview with, Joshua was uh, when I went to, I I said that I feel like I need to defend the people. What I wanted to say is that since um, I am trying to get things done in Montana and since I need people to work with in Montana and since Montana is so large that it's hard to find people in all of the different corners and like of, of Montana, I need to rely on you in a sense. And I need to defend you in that sense. Um, and he snapped back and said, well, Francis thinks you were a racist and a bigot. So what are, what are your thoughts about the Mises caucus in general? Like, cause you, you mentioned that we disagree right. with platforms. I've heard things like I've heard that when the Mises caucus is brought up in circles. And I know when my previous organizer talked with people, um, people have called them white supremacists just right out of the blue. And it's like, well, where does that come from? Like that, that is absolutely not what we're, what we're doing. Like that is antithetical to everything libertarianism is. 
So I just, so, I'm wondering where that comes from, because like, there is a, there is a question, like who is talking about this? Who is trying to spread those lies? And what, what are your like actual thoughts about Mises? So I, I don't think, you know, I'm not painting in broad brushstrokes saying all Mises caucus are bigots, racists, um, anti-Semites, uh, anything like that, you know, that's that's a prejudice in itself right like anytime that you use a branding to be it someone's uh color of their skin the way they look the way they dress anything like that it's gonna it's gonna be a prejudice um and i try not to be prejudicial that said um because of mises economic focus um that's the most important right that's the ron paul revolution that's what ron paul is well known for is talking about like um talking about the externalities talking about the unseen costs talking about how people are actually being affected by you know these negative uh monetary policies by these negative um hidden taxes like I personally believe that like auto insurance is a hidden tax because the government mandates you buy a product that you don't necessarily need. You know, it's like, it's, but it's all ways of getting stuff out of your money, out of money, out of your pocket. Right. Um, and that's, that's the marketing of, of politics is how, how do I take as much money out of your pocket and put it into mine? Um, so but that said, like what I see is like the Mises caucus, the chief important things are those financial points, are those are those hardcore economic points. The rest of the planks, not so much. But what people don't understand and is that if you get someone who is being racist or bigoted, and you don't correct them and you don't hold them accountable, then you're creating a culture where it's acceptable. And I know that's hard to say, but like the point is like, all of that doesn't matter. I don't care if you're anti-Semitic. Well, you know, I'm sorry, I care. My girlfriend's uh, converting to Judaism, you know? So my sister-in-law has relatives that were in the Holocaust. Yeah, I care if you're anti-Semitic, sorry. Uh, so, that, that's kind of the point is I'm not saying you're anti-Semitic. I'm saying that a culture is built where anti-Semitism is not a deal breaker. Yeah. And just to address that, who, who are you? Cause I mean, even I'm not aware of this, who said those things just cause I don't want it to seem as if you're just making something up if you are, or I mean, maybe you are, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, Kaufman's the chief perpetuator of a lot of these things. Like I'm not going to just pull stuff out of the blue. Like there's, many tweets where he's talking about um iq nature of blacks uh versus whites there's the hang 500 trannies and the ec economy will cover yeah and then um i i can't specifically remember the anti-semitic one but i know that there was something that uh there was a anti-semitic and this is what the person this is the this is the uh, what is it? Um, structurally resigning their positions that 
Jarvis claimed is she said they're talking anti-platform, so they are constructively resigning. Yeah, people, there's no such thing as constructively resigning. Um, like you, like, it's like saying, that would be like us saying that Karen Ann Harlos is acting um, anti to the way that we see things we see that libertarians should act. So she apparently resigned the uh, secretary, uh, the office of the secretary, you know, that that's ludicrous should not, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, but that, those were the claims that Jarvis made to effectively null, nullify the executive board. Um, but they were there. I mean, they've been happening since March, you know, and yes, I understand not everybody is aware of what was happening, um, when you, when you're on the LNC, you get the, the bird's eye view. Um, you get a lot of people that bring you stuff that you're like, I don't know what to do about this. I, I had, I had one member, ma uh, mail the LNC, um, out of Montana and try to call Joshua Smith on bullying him on Twitter. Um, ultimately there was nothing I could do. And I said that to Joshua, you know, I was like, the, there is no substantiated claim here. Like we have no control over your social media accounts. Um, but a sane and rational person would then take that and be like, okay, well, what am I doing wrong? Um, and that that's what I'm not seeing is I'm not seeing that anybody's looking at it and saying, okay, how do we hold our Mises members accountable? Like if they are going and spouting, these things, how do we respond to that? Do we just shrug and say, oh, no worries. Um, and, and that's the problem. It's not that Mises is bad. Like you are not bad. Adam is not bad. But what it is, is, is you are, you're applying a label to yourself that is a lot allowing um, that type of a culture, that structural culture um, to persist. And that's the main problem. Like things like Mises members have emailed Joe Bishop Henchman and he's gotten hate mail for being gay and married. You know, that, that is literally what happens. He would get, you know, at least a hundred a month on that. So to say that it doesn't exist, to say that bigotry and um, racism doesn't exist in the party is to be fooling, is fooling yourself. So yeah. on, on the point of like associating with a label, it's, it's interesting. Cause it's like, when I think about a libertarian movement, I've always approached it as like, it should be decentralized as possible. And that's part of the reason why I was so angered by the national attention and the direction of, of so on Mises part, um, the direction of resources towards Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, at least in the sense that that's where all of the energy was put and all of the rhetoric was focused around as if this, this rift existed nationally. Um, that, that was one thing that that's part of my idea that I, this libertarian movement should really be decentralized. It's like, like in Montana, we didn't really have these issues before. Well, I would say we still don't. Um, it was kind of fractured by your, you resigning and stuff like this. And it's, it's been hampered. Um, but like before that, this rift didn't exist at all. Like we could work on a, on a personal level. And that's, I, that's why 
I would love things to be so decentralized because the problems that exist in Pennsylvania and the problems that exist in New Hampshire don't exist here, right? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is that when I attach the label Mises and when I attach the, the libertarian label, Mises Montana doesn't represent Mises National and it shouldn't. And I shouldn't represent everyone else in Mises Montana. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it just, that's my big problem with, with everything that's going on um, is how nationalized even the rhetoric is. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that that's interesting. I, I sympathize with it and I understand where you're coming from. I, I really do. I, I haven't experienced a lot of like any of the, the anti-Semitism, but I do think, because I think those are just like, those are a couple people like they really are a couple people and they might be loud. I haven't heard them. I, I didn't even know this was an issue. Um, I've heard people talk about the fact that it's an issue, but then I do think that there is an issue about how edgy people try to be on Twitter. Um, I think that when we talk about how a message should be radical, um, which Mises says that they want. Um, so like, like they'll, they'll say, well, the, something that Trump was so effective at was how blunt he was um, when telling Jeb Bush that his brother got us into or lied us into the Iraq war and killed innocent people. Like, like, I think that that type of bluntness is different than the edginess that people are trying to, you know, spew on Twitter. And that's what I'm talking about with the professionalism is like, would Ron Paul do that? If we're saying we're the Ron Paul revolution and that's what we're, we pur purport to be, like, why would we carry his name and also do that? And why would we carry Mises's name? Why would we carry Hayek's name? Like, why would we carry any of these people's names? And then, like, because I think that it, it's totally possible that what you're talking about, Francis, was a joke. And it may have been like a really terrible joke. Um but why would we do that in their name? Like that, that's what it boils down to me is like, if like professionalism is what I want to bring into the party. Um, and that's what you want to bring into the party too. But I also agree with me, this is platform. So, well, and, and that's, so let me put it to you this way. When I recruited candidates in 2020, I said, I don't care what your platform is. I don't care what you're running on. If you run on something that is not in the libertarian platform, you need to have an answer for that. But I don't care. If you're putting the libertarian behind your, if you're putting the L behind your name on the ballot, I don't care. And we had some colorful candidates. We had people that, you know, definitely were uh, more on the conspiracy theories side. But they learned, you know, they, they, they sat and they learned and they they looked at it. But I also want to kind of correct you on one thing. Is like, I don't see the party as salvageable anymore. Like, I, I don't want to build the party anymore. Like, I've been doing it and then I got attacked. Why would I want to stay? Like, seriously, who does that? Like, it's, that's an abuse cycle. Like, I've had those in my childhood. I don't want them anymore. Sorry. You know? Um, and that's, yeah, 
so yeah, maybe it was a joke, but maybe it wasn't. Like, and why are we joking like that? You know, that's that's the real question. That's like, that's like, I know people say that you know it's going to be a backlash, but like, rape culture is actually a thing. Like, if you if you normalize and you okay behavior as a joke then if the person is actually mentally damaged and sick, they'll take the next step. Like, I'm not saying everybody's going to, but somebody's going to. Like, when the respect dies, when, when you poke fun at people, when you call them nerds, when, when you just take and degrade people until they're done, until they quit, until bullying works, um, then then you're allowing that behavior to continue, and that's that, that's the culture you're building. That's that's what you're going to be living in, and eventually you become the target. So, yeah. So I think um, there was a point that you made uh, that I want to focus on before we get into the, uh, the second point that you just made. So the first was that you had supported candidates that you didn't necessarily agree with. And (laughs) I think that that is very interesting and it it speaks to the person you are um, and the person that you were trying to be while while building the party here. Um, And when you talk about the fact that they changed, um, you told me in a personal conversation that the reason that he changed from being less conspiratorial was that he sat down and talked with you. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you is like, I mean, it's literally just to build a bridge between us so that we can see where we're coming from. And if, you know, I can convince you that there are more redeemable qualities on this side of what everyone's thinking, then like, I can do that. And if I can, if you can convince me, like, this is what needs to happen personally. And I think like even figures at the national level acknowledge that like a lot of people criticize the fact that Dave Smith talked to Hotep Jesus because of, um, he, he's an African-American and he, he thinks some things about, or he did think of some things about, um, Jews, like some conspiratorial things about Jews. And his argument was, hey, well, we should reach out to him and talk to him and convince him that this type of thinking isn't libertarian, like at all, and and kind of open them up to this worldview. So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do here. Like, I, I really do think that something that is really weird that is happening at the national level is that, like, we're just supposed to reject people like you, Francis, like, and and just not talk to them. Um, So that's my goal here is like, I want to lend a hand. I want to talk to you whether or not you're in the Libertarian Party or not. Um, Your name was brought up enough that I think people should hear your story. I don't know how many people are going to listen to this. Um, But yeah, that's, that's, that's on that point. If there's, um, I mean, if there's anything you want to say about that, do it. And then I think we can get into the other portion of what you said. Well, I think, I think the main thing is, yeah, being able to talk, being able to have an open dialogue. And that's, that's the key. That's, that's literally what it's all about. 
right? That's what politics is. Politics is the study of people, right? It's um, you know how they interact, how how it work, how they work together, um, or don't. Uh, and the way that the Libertarian Party, you know, the essence of what it's supposed to be is we all sit in a room, we say our piece, we all have a, an equal opportunity to talk, and then um, we all come to a, use our own judgments and come to a decision. Um, that's not how it's been. That's not how it's been in a long time. Um, and I thought, you know, like my journey, uh, 2017 here in Montana, like Ryan Zinke got appointed to secretary of the interior. So that vacated our house seat. And all of a sudden there was a like 30 day notice special election. So a bunch of the people who had worked on the, on the Trump camp or not on the, on the Gary Johnson campaign were like almost jumped right, almost immediately into helping out Mark Wicks, like Karen Ann Harlos uh, advocated for, she was region one rep at the time, um, advocated for uh, letting, giving the, the LNC, giving Mark Wicks his campaign money. Um, Mark Wicks has since become a Republican uh, because we couldn't retain him because we weren't professional because, because we weren't a winnable party. You know, um, because you know what happened in Mark Wiggs's campaign, um, the state chair at the time decided to the state chair and um, one of his friends decided to write op eds against the libertarian candidate, like the libertarian state chair was writing against the libertarian candidate. That's a culture we can't have. Like, if I don't like you, I'm going to keep I'm going to bite my tongue like. I don't go on to Twitter and talk bad about people. Um, so, but that's, that's what's happening. Like everybody has their strengths. Everybody has their weaknesses. Um, but trying to, trying to take and pull and point out those weaknesses just so that you either feel better about yourself or you can get that extra vote or whatnot, you know, that's, that's the wrong way of politics. Like, and, what I saw, like I started it, I started at that convention when we nominated Mark Wicks and I saw how much of a train wreck the state party was. So what happened? I looked up. I joined the state board, eventually became chair. Um, and then when I was at the chair level, I started interacting with the region one representative, Karen Ann Harlos, and then Richard Longstrom. And I started working with them. Um, so, like, my relationship with Karen Ann Harlos is is four years old. Um, and, yeah, it's... Uh, but the point is, when it... What it really comes down to is that um, every time I hit a level, I looked upward and I saw how bad it was um, up there. The problem is, like, not... I got to the LNC, like that's the top level. I can't look up and blame anybody else for doing it wrong because the LNC is broken. <laughs> so that you get like two, 
two, three people that can just hijack the whole rules of order, break down the respect and just not let people speak. And that's the problem. And that's what I see. So, um, sad that it took me, you know, four or five years to get to that point, but that's what I see we at where we're at now. Yeah. And you've, you've told me that you're not planning on coming back into the party. Um, I guess before we talk about what your plans are for the future, um, you don't think that the party can do anything at the local level. Like you don't think it can be effective at the local level. You think the entire thing national is essentially parasitic on local levels as well, or can those be salvaged as well? Cause that's my, um, yes. Uh, yes and no. Um, their national's job is to build an infrastructure and to support um, to support the state affiliates and the state affiliates should need to be supporting the local, the county affiliates and the county affiliates need to be pushing the local message. That's the ideal, right? Um, however, comma, it it's not that. County parties fold pretty quickly. Um, the person that I work with on the Gary Johnson campaign in 2016 left the party right after. Um, the re- the person who was my comms director on the Gary Johnson 2016 left in 2018. The person who was the who was uh, IT and finance left shortly a- left the LP shortly after I did. Like there are social networks, like actual social networks, not. Facebook crap um, that that are just dis- disengaging um, and that does come down to it is like you look at the basic concept is like what is the funding model of national the funding model of national is everybody pays $25 a year and they're a member or they pay $5 a month which is what I was doing until I shut it off um, so like it's and that pays for the staff and that pays for tyler and that pays for tara and that pays for michelle and andy and all of these people and it pays for um you know pays for robert but it also like pays for other things like legal defense it pays for the ability to challenge ballot access because really that's what national provides that's that's the top level cover that national provides is getting ballot access um but in montana they don't need to do anything in montana and they haven't and they won't like mark wicks was the last last effect that um that national has paid to montana like they won't even come here i've I've asked them so um and it's that that general east-west divide, you know. It's the coast-to-coast thing, um, and that's just a nature of politics. So I guess I guess know, there is a benefit to um, you know if there is a silver lining to everything that happened uh, within the LP, the Prags dissolving all of their money went to the Frontier Project. Yeah, how much was that? Do you I know? Don't, I don't. Do you? No. That, that's the point. It's like, you can say that's a good thing, but is it a good thing? Like, cause yeah. you got to think quantitatively, like 
I, I saw something about the Mises caucus raising like $10,000 or something annually. You know, I, I'm a numbers guy. Like I'm trained in business. When I look at what the national LP organization is, is what is the national, how would you measure the national organization? Because I'll tell you how I measure it. Revenue. It's a $2.5 million organization. That's what it is. The hotel I work at in Bozeman, it's a $3.5 million organization. So, like, a hotel in Bozeman is bigger than the national party. That That's the reality of it. So do you not see any so, to, uh, like movement like the Mises caucus then entering the party and trying to reinvigorate this energy? Because I mean, I think that that's a very good thing is, is reaching out to people who belong in the party who have been associating with Republicans uh, illegitimately, I think, um, and calling themselves Republicans when they really do belong in the Libertarian Party. And that that was my goal. Um, and that is my goal to reach them and, and uh, bring them in. So it comes down to what makes a political party. And I, I put this into my uh, resignation letter and I put it into a few things. It, it's not like, it's not a movement. It's not anything like that. There, there are five types of people you need in a political party. Um, you need leaders. You need staff. You need donors. You need candidates and you need activists. If you don't have all five of those, and they better be different people, then you're not gonna make it. You need the funding, you need the strategy, you need the vision, and you need the workers, and you need the face. That, that's, that's how you win elections. Like when you say the Frontier Project is doing, is doing an amazing job, yeah. I know exactly what the Frontiers Project's doing. They're doing amazing work. Marshall is an awesome guy. Um, but I also know the heartbreak that Bethany dealt with. And I know I know that there's a lot of problems. Like, there's a lot of issues. And it's, it's not uphill. Like, bringing people into the party is one thing, but the next enemy is going to tear you to pieces. Like, the enemies in the party are small potatoes. Like, you want to fight me? great the the republicans will tear you to pieces they will waste your time waste your effort and 20 years from now you'll die on the road in sealy just like my fellows like do you that's that's the truth like it's like do you want to work with people or do you want to uh do you want to just work out shoot from the hip work off of a gut feeling like you need people that are analyzing the numbers you need people that, that can tell you how you're going to win it and that's what apollo is doing down in wyoming and that's what the frontier project's doing so like yeah the pregs gave frontier their money eleanor swanson gave the frontier project all their all of her campaign funds from 2018 that's good. But is it is it good enough? That's the real question. 
Yeah. And I mean, it, it is pretty interesting how much work they have been able to get done. I mean, it's uh, when you compare it to the other parties, um, it's obviously not a lot, but they have got candidates elected um, first time, at least in this area, since like, I think it was the 90s. Um, so, I mean, they, they have the potential to do a lot of work and I'm happy they're in our neighborhood. So, um, I guess let I, me, since we're on the, uh, since we're on the frontier projects, yeah. this is, uh, this is the 2018 candidates. So Sid, you know, Bethany mm-hmm. down below, Amber's a good friend, Gideon. Gideon was just fired from uh, his contract with National. And why was that? Sid, because uh, he advocated for the staff to strike. It's against his contract. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was fallout from, from the New Hampshire issue. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I will say that um, I... <laughs> I am optimistic for, for the party. And I, I really, that's why I got into it. And I see the energy that is coming in. Um, I do think that there are stragglers and people who are following that, um, you know, maybe we have to check. And I think that we shouldn't necessarily be accepting of certain rhetoric. And I think professionalism is important. Like I think when you are talking about reaching people in Idaho and when you're talking about reaching people in Montana, I don't think you have to look much, much further than Ron Paul. Um, and, and if that's what people are saying, um, I think that like, if that's what people are purporting to do, I think that we should. Um, but on that point, um, I got a question from, some people who were in the Mises caucus and uh, here locally. And I'm just wondering if you were in my position, what would you do? Like if, if I'm tra- in your position. Yeah. If I'm trying to grow the party, if I'm trying to reach out to people like you um, and I'm trying to also bring in Ron Paul types, because I, I do think that I do think that they have been left out of the party for a while. Um, whether or not that was voluntarily or whether or not they weren't accepted by um, some people will say Sarwark didn't accept them. Um, I guess, what do you think that people like I should do that are trying to enter the party and unite people who are willing to work? If you want to unite people, um, then you have to, you have to be stern. You have to, you have to be willing to say, you know, like you're chair of Missoula, right? Um, you have to keep an eye on who's abusing the system. Let everybody talk, hold the votes, don't chime in. It's that simple. You know, it's like just, just you, you manage the meeting you let everybody have their say and you follow the system, right? That's what a chair does. Um, so if you want people to be included, you let them, you let them speak, but not excessively. You, you can put time limits on, um, but you got to hold people accountable. 
that's the big thing. You've got to hold people accountable. And if, if someone, if you've got a, someone who's taking a label that you put, put on you and they're degrading that label, you need to hold them accountable too. So like, that's the, that's the key. And that's the trick with uh, libertarianism, right? Personal autonomy requires accountability. Like if you, if you think that I can do whatever I want because fuck government, right? Uh, it's the problem is like, where does that line stop? Cause like, not everybody has the same moral compass. Not everybody has the same um, view of right and wrong. And I guess that's the same thing as moral compass. But <clears throat> but when you associate with that person, you're gonna you're gonna then take on some. You're going to be immediately lumped in with them. That's that's what humans do because we like to take shortcuts, um, mentally speaking. Um, so for you, my recommendation for you would be to like stick to your own convictions, look at your own principles. If you want to build this party and let everybody have their say, you need to look at the people who are against that goal and you need to call them on it and you need to get them, um, if they're being disruptive out of there, like, that's that's what it needs to happen um because i hate to say it like you don't want to censor and you don't want to do these things but at the same time if someone's goal is to disrupt your proceedings like what do you do in that situation sometimes you just have you just have to stand up and you just have to fight it goes back to the analogy i said before is like guess what there are people in this world that want to kill you you should probably kill them first so there are people who want to silence you i mean hear them out until until the until you're absolutely sure that that's what they're doing and then then you take action and that's that's what i was tempted to do with karen ann because i was fairly certain her goal was silencing the majority of the LNC. I'm interested if, if like that would be your advice to me being in the Mises caucus, if you can sympathize then with perhaps rhetoric that might, uh, you know, like the takeover language. Um, if, if you were to yourself adopt this idea that, you know, there are certain people that we might have to drown or like not, uh, their voices might need to be drowned out or something or like they might not uh they shouldn't hold as much power as they have do you think that there is any legitimacy to the claim then that is coming from the mises caucus that perhaps there needs to be a takeover because the party hasn't been effective for so long you know what i mean like if if all of the problems you're identifying are a result of just like whatever the mises caucus will say or at least if that's what their belief belief is is that the result that everything that you have identified like all the problems with the libertarian party is a result of um 
the lack of strong positions on certain things or something like this, do you think that there is any legitimacy then to them being like, okay, well, we need to drown those guys out and we need to enter the party and, you know, we say we're libertarians, like identify libertarians with that strong message, I guess. Well, that's, that's the key there. What's, what is a libertarian and who is the one true libertarian, right? That, that's that's the problem is like everybody's defining it differently like how do i define being a libertarian well i define being a libertarian on a very classical liberal sense where you're looking at what the founding fathers wrote or you're looking at um at inalienable rights you're looking at what is what is given to you um by divine and what is uh given to you by government which you know government doesn't give you anything it just takes um so but the point is like that's my lens that's what i look through it i I don't look through it from reading hayek i don't look through it from meeting mises i you know i don't i don't do these things because i've had the quantitative and educational backing of like evaluating economics and, and i've you know those are those are the teachings that uh that come through when if you want to see them when you're going through university you know it's like um but the point is like when you when you say the takeover do i sympathize with the takeover language no i i don't because there's a difference between disruptive actors who are intending to disrupt and there's um and there's difference between someone who's trying to seize it just because they don't like who's in power um like that that's the point is i i'm a target because uh because of this vote or that vote you know um i got i got in my resignation letter i uh had responded to one of the many many email pushes that the Mises caucus put out. I think there was probably about four or five to date that have resulted in over 5,000 emails to the LNC. Um, and it was the treasurer of, of um, Nevada who had just recently taken the office. And he expressed to me I said, yes, I voted for Tom Woods to speak in Reno because I believe that we need to have, um, we need everyone to be able to have a voice and um, regardless of who may or may find him distasteful. um, I voted so that he could speak, right? There was only one dissenting vote in that. Um, Again, the LNC is not against the Mises caucus. The Mises caucus is against the LNC. Like that's what the takeover language says. That's what you're, that's what, um, the language I got from the, um, from the treasurer in Nevada was I'm looking forward to saying goodbye to you in Reno. Man had never talked to me before at all, but I wasn't hit. I wasn't on his team. I wasn't red team or blue team. So I wasn't good. Like, yeah, and I have seen comments from out of state calling out our own chair in Montana. And Sid is kind of impartial on all of this. So I think there is some validity to what you're saying. But I do question um, just 
on the takeover point one more time, just because you you said uh, earlier that you would be supportive of whatever the part, like this may have been in personal conversations too, but like just the idea that you were in favor of due process and that if the majority of the party agrees on this, that's what the majority of the party agrees on and that's the way we're going. Um, So like what is, I guess, necessarily wrong with bringing people into the party who want to identify with the libertarian label and then the majority of them disagreeing with the leadership. So it's not, it's, it's redefining the libertarian label. Like the people who are in the party are libertarians, like, but I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten that have said, we're coming in and we're going to, we're going to put the true libertarians back in. So that's the whole point is like, it's another one of those enemy tactics. It's like, if you're, if you're not on the approved list, you know, then you're, you know, if if you're a free thinker and you're not just kind of like doing everything the emails tell you, um, then you're probably the enemy. Um, and I hate to break it. That's a collective attitude, you know, and that's what I'm seeing. Like it's, it's not, it's not free thinking individuals. It's not, individuals it's it's a hive mind and that i can't fight that i can't do anything about that is why i resigned i think that there is some legitimacy to the idea that it is a hive mind and these are some criticisms that i've had when talking with adam and stuff like that and that's part of what i was trying to get at when i was talking about the manufactured anger and manufactured crisis um but I still think that it would still be possible for someone to recognize that leadership is ineffective or whatever, like Sarwark, like people have called out Sarwark and, and say that maybe we need some more energy in here and also identify that everyone in the party is a libertarian. Like you are a libertarian. I can like, after all of my conversations with you, I'm like, (laughs) you are absolutely a libertarian, you know? And I'm sure that everyone else that you surround yourself with is, um, at least within the party. But like, I still think that I'm not willing to necessarily discredit the idea that someone that could identify that and recognize that you are a libertarian could also say that Sarwark needs to go, even if he might be a libertarian or might not be, you know what I mean? Like, I just think that that's how parties have to work. Like, like if the majority disagrees and these people have been calling themselves libertarians for so long, but they haven't been in the party because they haven't felt welcome. Like there's a certain sense in which, like if they are the majority and they've been out of the party, if they come in, like they're, I don't know. I, that's just my, my thoughts about, and, and, and I'm not trying to like disagree with you. I just think yeah. because so, you, you agree with the due process of it. And that's pretty clear in all of our conversations. Right. And and that's the thing is like, if Sarwark needed to go, um, then Joshua Smith would have been chair in 2018. You know, um, that's the thing. And like, the Sarwark needed to go movement. Yeah, I know when I know when that started, and I know who started it. Um, fun fact: you target the king, you become 
Robin Hood. So go a little bit back and see who's been targeting uh, the chair every move they make. So I'm, I'm not going to try and defend Nick. Like, I'm not going to try and defend JBH. I, I respect both men. I respect Whitney. Like, when we, after Joe, JBH resigned, like, a few of us got, a few on the LNC got to talking, and, um, like, they asked who I wanted. I said Whitney. Like, that, that was first and only name I put forward. So she's the right person to be the chair right now. Um, but guess what? Just, just you watch. She'll take heat for the next eight, nine months. The drama's not going to stop. And that's another reason I left. I, I wasn't going to deal with this for the next... I wasn't going to deal with this until Memorial Day. Not, not when I have a son that I need to take care of. You know? Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you want to target someone, if you want to, if you want to disagree with someone, that's great. In 2018, um, at NOLA, I, I went to the mic and I spoke on behalf of the Lib Sox and their NOLA accord because I said, you know what? I think we need to be willing to have the conversation to, to let them present their argument on how rent is theft and on how, you know, you can work on you know, all of these, these things, go ahead, have those conversations. I'm going to vote against every time, but I want to hear what you have to say. You know, it's like, that's the point. We need to hear disparate attitudes. We need to hear disparate perspectives because otherwise it's an echo chamber. Yeah. And I that's what I see is, a slowly um, shrinking echo chamber in the LP. Yeah. It's interesting because when, when you and I were talking about that earlier, um, you told me you disagreed with Sarwark on that point. Sarwark didn't want the socialists in the party. Or no. At least them. no. And, and the socialists are wrong, plain and simple. They're wrong, but we need to have them there to strengthen our resolve and yeah when i was at the at the mic uh nick i, I could just see him rolling his eyes because i think he wanted me to speak against them but nope i was speaking for them because because i like i like open debate i like tempering your arguments with healthy debate the minute you start silencing and shutting people down that's the minute that it becomes a problem and that's what i was warning you against not not saying, you know, take over, not saying anything like that. Let your ideas and let your debate win the day. Don't let the tactics and the drama drag you down. Like, don't, don't let people tap into your fear. Like, one of my favorite quotes is from Terry Goodkind, um, Wizard's First Rule. People are stupid. They will believe anything as long as they want it to be true or fear it to be true. They'll believe any lie. And that's, that's what, that's how you, that's how you uh, wrangle a mob. That's how you get these things. Like I've heard, I've heard talk about what was happening in the conventions this past cycle. 
um, where there were things that were being voted on that were by the Mises caucus that literally they were voting on them by text. Like, and it was very apparent because one text went out and it was the wrong, it was the wrong vote. And so they, de they defeated their own motion because they said nay rather than yay, you know, but the point is like the drones and the hive mind just went along with it. Like that, that's, that's literally what's going on, you know? And me being an individual, yeah, I don't want any part of that. Yeah. So this has gone on very long, this interview. Um, <laughs> yeah. I hope people listen to it. I really do. I think, um, I don't know if people will, maybe they don't want to hear from you. I mean, it's pretty clear that they, they don't. Um, but I, I hope there are a few people out there that like just want to hear the other side, because I mean, I think that, Another thing that attracts people to libertarianism is just how polarized national politics are and how we're just so unwilling to talk to people at the personal level. Like that's why national politics sucks so much is because you're dealing with people from New York when you live in Montana rather than just working locally with people. So I think that I, I hope there are some people out here out there who um, just wanted to hear your side, whether or not they agree or not. Cause you know, I, I guarantee you, and I know like we don't agree on, on everything. Like even in this interview, we, we disagreed a little bit, but like, all I care about is a personal conversation, reaching out and, you know, caring for your well being. like you're a person. And I saw you got attacked quite a bit. Um, and being that you were essentially in my backyard, like I, I just wanted to I wanted to reach out. Um, so is there anything else that you want to say is, uh, do you want to tell people what your goals are for the future? What you plan on doing after the LP, I guess. Yeah. Anything else? Um, the point is like, it's, I do, I see the LP as a vehicle to win elections. No, the frontier project is a vehicle to win elections. Um, the LP was supporting that, but the LP wasn't the vehicle. Um, what Apollo did is more important than what the LP has done in 10 years. That's, that's what it is. Um, and everybody plays lip service to the frontier project, but the point is like, it, it requires people, it requires, uh, that. So really I'm looking at some type of model in a nonpartisan, uh, potentially a political action committee. Um, I'm not, I'm not looking to label myself libertarian anymore, big L libertarian anymore, um, because it's a liability. Because if I want to get elected, you say I'm a libertarian, but if I want to get elected in Bozeman, I need to run as a Democrat. And I can, I can run as a Democrat. Um, if I want to get elected uh, out in rural Montana, I need to run as a Republican and I can get elected that way. Um, so like I've recruited plenty of candidates, um, and told them we can get them resources. The truth is the resources aren't there. So you can get people, but until you have the resources to engage them, they're just names on a list. Um, 
So I'm looking to to work those resources together um, and not have to worry about, like, I answer to donors at that point. I don't answer to constituents. I don't answer to um, secretaries. I don't answer to chairs, you know? And to me, that's a more beneficial avenue than trying to trying to make the LP into something it's not because I've been doing that for a few years. So. Yeah. And I, uh, just before we go, I do think that there is something that people within the LP have to consider, um, is, is just the fact that like some of these most libertarian States like Montana, um, were able to get so much done within the last legislative session without a single libertarian in their, and sitting in the office like and i think that if if we really do want to ask ourselves or if we if we really want to um get something built here we have to ask ourselves why that is and and uh what we can do about that if if there's any room that we can move um to to get people in the in the party or if it's just um futile because of that. Like, I think these are questions just to strengthen our position. Um, these are conversations that we have to have. Like, why is it that Montana passed um, and nullified federal uh, gun laws making constitutional carry in Montana? Like, why is that the case that they did that with Republicans without any libertarians in the office? Why is it that they repealed um, certificate of need laws just all of these questions I think are necessary or why is like Montana a marijuana sanctuary now without libertarians sitting in office? Um, I think that there is room and that's why I'm in the party. There is room to move um, more decentralized, more local and more libertarian. But I think that those are questions that we have to address. Right. And, and the point is last cycle, uh, my girlfriend and I, both got about 30% of the vote in state legislature. Um, existing does move the message um, because you're forcing the other parties to move in that direction. Uh, however, the other parties are more funded. So like what you want to do with the state party, like I can tell you the libertarian base here in Montana is 5%. That's, you know, I've looked at the data multiple elections. It's 5%. Um, so really like, yes, you can exist. And like, we do have an elected libertarian in Montana, sit down, you know, and people can go ahead and target him all they want, but he's an elected libertarian. People outside of the party voted for him. And that's the key. The libertarian party is not about who can scream the loudest two other libertarians like this conversation this conversation may do some people some good but it doesn't do any good on the outside it doesn't win a vote i think you froze just a second are you there yeah i'm here okay yeah i think you froze after you said this conversation doesn't do the outside any good. Right. So, you know, it, it doesn't, this conversation doesn't uh, write any checks. This conversation doesn't knock on any doors. This conversation doesn't like 
doesn't get on the phone, right? Like it's it's a mat. This has this has an audience of libertarians, Mises Caucus. Um, but if the libertarian is going to go anywhere, it has to talk outside of the bubble. Yeah. It has to talk to voters, and it has to talk to them on their level, like edge lording. You will be amazed that when I resigned, how easy it was absolutely easy for me to just wipe away every last libertarian bit from my social media. Like, I'm talking about less than an hour. And I tuned everything out. That's how easy it is. So if, if you want to have that edgy message, you're tuning out millions. So... I guess that's what I would part with is like you be careful who, what you say because people are listening. Yeah. Well, I hope, I mean, I know, I know this conversation won't reach people on the outside. I mean, maybe there will be some listeners, but I hope people who are in the Mises caucus are at least taking these things into consideration, whether or not you agree with them or not. Like I, I hope it um, can move you in some way. Like these are tough conversations that I've had with Mises people like at, at the ground. Like I, I don't think that it's the case that these national conversations don't affect people locally. I'm, I'm sure that it's causing fractures at the local level. So I really hope that people who are in these circles will consider, you know, what our goals are and, and our, our strategy and just rethink um, your strategy. Because I mean, if, if you claim to uphold certain principles, if you claim to uh, be a part of the Ron Paul revolution or whatever, ask yourself whether or not what you're doing is the best way to be a vehicle for those messages. I think that that's an important thing for everyone to do, whether or not you come away with thinking that Francis is wrong. <laughs> you know, that's just, I think that those are conversations that you need to have in, in your head. So that's why I wanted to reach out to you, Francis. Um, again, it was, it was partially because we didn't really know each other that well. And, um, you know, me being a part of Mises and, and you being a part of the LP, uh, I'm sure that there was a point where, uh, you were a little skeptical about me and I was a little skeptical about you just because of these caricatures that were built online. And I, I'm sick and tired of that. I just want to meet people locally. I want to, I want to get down on the personal level and, and meet people. So thank you for coming on, man. Yeah, not a problem. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get go. It's the get go, get go. Still not as green as a bank account screen on. Not really, though. You were probably jealous of me when I don't have a lot of money, but I've got a full bread box and some honey.